Uh, this morning's Bible reading is from Colossians 1, and if you're following in the church Bible, it's uh, page 1182, and we're starting at verse 15. It's under the heading, The Supremacy of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he may have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were all alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Good morning, everybody. How appropriate when we're thinking about human identity that we should have Phil Redwood followed by Steve Edwards up here. The breadth of human expression. The smallest and the biggest at Upton Vale. It's uh, the vertically challenged Phil followed by the man mountain himself. Anyway, that wasn't in the script. So... Something else that wasn't in the script. 22nd of February, 1997, in an art gallery in Italy, some enterprising thieves got up onto the roof, they took off the skylight, and then they think, that is the police, they think they did it with a fishing rod. But they lowered a line down... The sky, through the skylight into the art gallery where on the wall was Gustav Klimt's 1917 painting The Portrait of a Woman uh, worth millions and millions and they simply caught it and reeled it up. And uh, it was proclaimed stolen and there was a search all over the world but it was not found. We'll come back to that story later. This morning I'd like to continue our teaching series, A Better Story, by taking a look at the issue of transgender. Once again, a sermon in this context will probably raise as many questions as it gives answers. So please do come along on Thursday evening that you heard earlier about, where we can talk some more together about this highly contentious issue and we'll do our best to answer people's questions. When I say I'm going to look at the issue of transgender, I'm going to focus on the trans movement this morning as we experience it today in the UK. 
Not so much on the people themselves, but on the political movement that is associated with transgender. As we ask the question, in whose image are we going to be made? Throughout history and across the world, some type of gender ambiguity or gender fluidity has always existed. I remember being in India and having a fascinating conversation with my son-in-law when, for the first time in my life, I came across the hijras, uh, people who have been uh, men of uh, Indian society who for centuries have dressed as women and who are just one of many global examples of what can be broadly referred to as transgender people across the world. It is not a modern phenomena. What is new is the political movement in the West that goes with it. Looking back now on my life, I now see that I was not incredibly naive and complacent about something. I never ever imagined that to say publicly what the book of Genesis in the Bible says, that human beings are made in the image of God, male and female, would ever be considered a wicked thing to say. I could, have un I could understand it was not going to be believed. I could understand it would be ridiculed. But I never anticipated what we have today, that such a view would be held to be offensive and immoral and simply unacceptable in a tolerant society. How naive I was, because that is exactly where we are. In 2018, Dr. David McCarrath was sacked from his job in the Department for Work and Pensions after refusing to use transgender pronouns. Speaking in the press, he said, I believe gender is defined by biology and genetics. And as a Christian, the Bible teaches us that God made humans male or female. Now, in an unprecedented ruling, an employment tribunal judge has ruled that his Christian belief, based on Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that God has made us male and female, is, quote, incompatible with human dignity and not worthy of respect in a democratic society. That case is currently being appealed. So how on earth did we get here? In May 2016, Time magazine was published with the headline, Transgender, the Tipping Point, America's Next Civil Rights Frontier. And this influential magazine on both sides of the Atlantic was making the judgment that following years of campaigning, they detected a shift in how the public was beginning to think about the transgender issue. And they were right. That same year, nominations for BAFTA awards included The Danish Girl, a film loosely based on the life of Ina Wegner, a Dutch painter in the 1920s who transitioned to Lily Elbe and became one of the first to undergo reassignment surgery, from the complications of which she tragically died. This was preceded a few months earlier by Caitlyn Jenner, formerly male decathlon Olympic gold medal winner Bruce Jenner, being proposed as Woman of the Year by Glamour magazine. 
And then there was a literal media onslaught of one transgender story after another. In this country, we have our own celebrity transgender people, including Frank Maloney, who used to make his living, or still does apparently, as a former boxing promoter, but now called Kelly Maloney. So let's step back and try and understand what on earth is going on here. When we talk about transgender, we're not primarily talking about people's sexual attraction. It's rather about one's, someone's core sense of identity, who they feel they really are. And a transgender person is a person who doesn't feel comfortable with the gender of the natural body that they are in. And that can be on a whole range from some slight discomfort and uncertainty right the way through to feeling completely imprisoned in the wrong gender body. Most people experience alignment between their biological sex and their sense of who they are. But for some people, that alignment is missing, sometimes from an early age. And understandably, in that confusion, they can experience a great deal of distress. And that distress at the extreme end of the spectrum is called gender dysphoria. And professional diagnoses of gender dysphoria is, is relatively rare. Something like 1 in 13,000 males and 1 in 34,000 females. Though if trends continue, those occurrences will become uh, uh, more frequent. So transgender is now an umbrella term that is used for all the various ways which people might use to describe themselves when they don't feel that they can be understood in the simple categories of male and female. And here, it gets very confusing. A questionnaire designed for use in British schools, posted on the website of the government-appointed Children's Commissioner, offered young people aged 13 to 18 the choice of self-identifying in terms of 23 different genders, including bigender, transgender, demigirl, genderqueer, and so on. Facebook's diversity team tried the same approach. They found 58 gender options and then gave up. They now say, if you do not identify with the pre-populated list of gender identities, you are able to add your own. As before, you can add up to 10 gender terms. So what are the trans movement campaigning for? It would appear that the agenda now is actually to remake the whole of society in the image of the trans community. The thinking behind this is known as queer theory, which basically teaches that our gender, our male and femaleness, as well as our sexuality, is fluid and entirely our right to choose. Who we are, according to queer theory, is our choice, regardless of the bodies we are in. I identify as is the final authoritative statement of our day. And the campaign is now to say that if we are an inclusive and tolerant society, 
we basically must get rid of labels like male and female because that does not include and tolerate people who identify themselves outside of those stereotypical labels. Anatomy is not destiny, we are confidently told. And the new thought today is that if all gender is on a spectrum, well, then we're all trans. The pattern of thinking is incredibly influential. The government is now proposing to abolish the need for medical consultation before gender reassignment surgery. It says on its website that trans people have found the current process bureaucratic, expensive, and intrusive. It begs the question, should changing our gender really be as simple as changing our name? The same report proposes that 16 and 17-year-olds should be eligible to apply for sex change surgery and that children should be able to use puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones earlier. And having done that for two years, some of those effects are irreversible. And that the government should move towards non-gendering all official records so that we have male and female and then a third option, gender X. London Transport have prohibited the use of what they now call heteronormative words, such as ladies and gentlemen. Universities are now under pressure to mark down students who use the gender pronouns he and she instead of a neutral pronoun like Z. NHS Scotland recently released guidelines to schools saying that they should drop the terms boys and girls. In Scottish education, while you still have to get parental consent for high school pupils who want a paracetamol during the day, you don't have to get parental consent if the child wants to identify under a different gender and name. Make no mistake, the trans movement is having huge impact. Seven, there is a 700% rise in child referrals to gender clinics in the past five years. A 700% rise. There is a real culture war going on about how our country and communities will be in the future. Real civil liberties are at stake. Freedom of thought and speech is at stake. Because one of the features of this movement is that there is no scrutiny or debate allowed. People who question the wisdom of what is happening are immediately accused of hate speech. Academics aren't engaged with their demands to the university for them to be sacked. People are deplatformed in our universities. A number of leading academics who have questioned all this have been threatened with violence. My own sense is that in the UK right now, there are increasing numbers of people in this country, Christians, Muslims, Jews, Sikhs, people of all faiths and none, feminists, scientists, and crucially, many of the, le uh, the lesbian, gay, and bisexual community 
whose campaign group Stonewall has split over this very issue. Not to mention the vast majority of people before born before 1950. My sense is that all of us are beginning to find a common sense that we are excluded by inclusion. That we are no longer tolerated by tolerance. And no longer British by the standard of so-called British values. This cartoon, drawn by a friend of mine, sums it up nicely. So how are we to think and what should we do? What wisdom and understanding does the Bible bring to this situation? How are we to respond? This is where we turn to our Bible reading from Colossians 1. And in particular, verse 27. For Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The first thing we have to do, the thing that is most important, imperative to do, is to recognize who Jesus is. Jesus is always before all things, beyond all things. He comes first. Everything was made by him and for him. He transcends us. He is always more than we can understand or imagine. He is beyond all of us in terms of his wisdom. He is also before us in the sense that we are all standing before him, answerable to him. The Bible says he is beyond all things. So that means that when it comes to where we find ourselves in our nation today, Jesus, and this is so important for everyone here this morning to hear this, Jesus is not on the side of the church against our culture, as we would like to sometimes assume. And incidentally, if we do assume that, We've not learned much since the Crusades. The Bible seems to teach that he is beyond us, both beyond British culture today and the church as we experience it. Challenging the thinking and behavior of both British culture and the church, if only we would listen. So this Jesus who is beyond all things transcends how all of us think and behave the trans community and the church community included. But crucially, that Bible passage in Colossians goes on to say that it is only in Jesus that all things hold together. All things, including what it means to be human, only hold together, have any coherence and consistency when Jesus is the one at the center. Human identity unravels without Jesus in whose image we are made. But in him all things hold together also includes British society. In other words, the Bible suggests that British society, like every other society in the, the world, will only hold together to the degree to which its culture aligns with God's wisdom revealed in Jesus. Now that's a massive statement. How can I possibly justify that? Well, let me prove it to you. I'd like to look at four key words critical to the Bible. 
and critical to a Christian understanding of the world, to see how they call both the church and the trans community to make a better country than the one we currently have and give us all a better story. The four words are love, freedom, humility, and conversion. Let's talk about love. The Bible says God is love. And first and foremost, urgently and intentionally, the Bible calls both the church and the trans communities to go beyond platitudes about love and really discover about what love means. For the church, this means we have to recognize that right at the heart of the gospel is, to com- is the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that without love, we're nothing. 1 John 4 says that if we, don't love God, if we don't love, we don't know God. We cannot hide behind these words as a church. We have to get really clear in our minds about what genuine love looks like and feels like for anyone in the LGBTI community. Love requires that we break down the barriers that push us apart. These people are not our enemy. But a lot of gay and transgender people feel like the church hates them. They sense our disapproval and our judgment. It's imperative that we have grace for people who live in ways with which we disagree. We have to think about the example of Jesus. Remember, Jesus never required anyone to change before he had relationship with, with them and required everyone to change after he had relationship with them. We must let people belong here before they believe. The church's response to those who identify as transgender and to those who struggle with gender dysphoria must be immediately and with complete integrity, you are welcome here. You are loved here. God loves you and this community will love you. We understand you didn't choose to feel this way. Jesus was emphatic that any follower of his must love their neighbor as themselves. And the trans community are definitely our neighbors. True gender dysphoria is not a willful choice. Compassion and empathy should characterize us. We must help gender-conflicted people experience welcome and identity and community amongst us, discovering for themselves a relationship with God who has the power of transforming love. Love doesn't mean we compromise on what we believe. Love is the only thing that holds the tension between grace and truth. But what does the Bible teach about love to the trans community? Well, today there is a basic assumption that if you love someone, you have to accept them exactly as they are, without judgment. Popular wisdom says that to criticize a person's life choices is to become a judgmental and unloving person. Love today has to be inclusive, non-judgmental and accepting, or it is not love. But the love the Bible speaks of is very different to that. The love of which the Bible speaks says that genuine love for a person actually necessitates us opposing things which will hurt that person. Paul put it this way in Romans 12. Love must be sincere, so hate what is evil and cling to what is good. 
In other words, for the love to be sincere, it must be actively opposed to all that is harmful and destructive to the person who is loved. That's, that makes sense, doesn't it? If you're walking down the street and the person you love is next to you and they're attacked by a mob and you do absolutely nothing, what sort of love is that? But if you do what my friend did a couple of years ago when uh, her husband was attacked, that she dived in and, and, and lay over his body and protected him, that demonstrates that love. It speaks volumes of the selfless love shared between the two of them. Once we understand that love has to involve active opposition to all that threatens our loved ones, it's an easy next step to see why the Christ Christian tradition has always said that we've got to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, and why we need to challenge those we love when we think that they're making destructive choices. The biblical idea of speaking the truth in love is foundational to democracy's foundations of freedom of thought and speech. To disagree and to challenge is not necessarily phobia or hatred. When it's done properly, it's love in action. So it's love in action that asks questions of the trans movement like... Given that 80% of children who do experience some sense of gender incongruence grow out of it to become compatible with their physiology again, isn't it incredibly irresponsible to propose to treat children and young people with hormone treatments which can have such long-term irreversible consequences and bring about a heightened risk of heart disease, high blood pressure, blood clot, diabetes, and all sorts of other things. How can that be the most loving thing to do? It's love for women that requires us to ask. How do, the trans, how do trans demands protect the rights of women? For as example, as happened a couple of years ago, when a Scottish man charged with double rape identified then as a woman and requested being placed in a women's prison and only to be searched by female guards. It's love that requires us to ask very, a very sensitive question. Where does this leave us with the diagnosis, diagnosis and treatment for psychological disorders? How do we distinguish between people who are genuinely transgender and those whose dysphoria is a psychological disorder about the body like anorexia? Or if someone believes they're in the wrong species and wants surgery to become a snake or a cat, should this be viewed in the same way as transgender? And if not, why not? How do we love people with mental health disorders in the society where it appears many want to create where whatever someone identifies as simply cannot be questioned? That is not loving. To ask these kinds of questions is not hate speech. It is simply to question the wisdom of what is being proposed out of a commitment to love our neighbor and try to speak the truth in love. The second word is freedom. Again, the Bible's teaching on freedom transcends the practices of both communities. 
As far as the church is concerned, we have to admit that we've contributed to the mess our culture is in right now because we've abused our freedom. For years, we've neglected politics and public service, preferring to live in our cozy, holy huddles and Christian bubbles. We are getting now what we deserve for ignoring the basics of Christianity. May your will be done on earth as in heaven. We have misused our freedom to retreat from the public square and indulge ourselves in private religion, personally engaging but publicly irrelevant. We Christians have had our own music, our own festivals, our own authors and our own TV channels and we're now reaping what we've sown. As Christians involved in politics have been saying to the church for years, we have to remember that life-changing decisions in our country are made by handfuls of people who just bother to show up at committee meetings. We have reaped what we have sown. We have misused our freedom. But how does the Bible's teaching on freedom challenge the trans community? In our culture right now, one of the biggest things we value is the freedom to choose. Today we see it as a basic human right to choose and see any restrictions on our choices as an outrage. In the Bible though, freedom is as much about making the right choices as it is being free to choose. Imagine driving home and you come to a T-junction. In our culture right now, the only freedom people seem to talk about is the freedom to choose, do I go left or do I go right? As long as I'm completely free to make that choice, then we're free. But in the Bible, it tends to be more concerned about whether the choice we made to turn left or right got us home or got us lost. In other words, the Bible values the freedom to choose, but is equally, if not more concerned, about whether the choices we make actually lead people to experience greater freedom. Jesus seems to teach that true freedom appears to be something you gain or something you forfeit, depending on the choices you make. And the Bible's teaching about freedom is that it's as much, much more than the absence of constraints. Surely the life of Nelson Mandela teaches us that. Constrained in his cell, he was nevertheless on the inside free. But in contrast, those who are utterly free can be terribly imprisoned. As Amy Winehouse, Prince, George Michael, Whitney Houston and a tragically long line of other healthy, wealthy, gifted and famous celebrities have shown us that with all the freedoms of choice, we end up imprisoning ourselves. Just look at the history of lottery winners for more evidence of the same. The Bible's understanding of freedom strongly challenges the idea that we should teach our nation's children that their identity is fluid and can be chosen. If the truth sets people free, where is the science behind that claim? Where is the objective science evidence to back up queer theory that gender is fluid? To go ahead with this education policy, with organizations like Mermaid going into schools and saying, you can be whoever you choose to be beyond your anatomy, 
is to treat a generation of our children as guinea pigs with enormous scientific and medical consequences. It is to separate freedom from truth in such a way as to no longer bring freedom at all. The other thing about the Bible's view of freedom is that rather than just focusing on creating an environment where being free to choose our gender is the norm, we should focus instead on asking what is the level of freedom experienced by those who have gone through the whole gender reassignment process. We should not be afraid to ask, does this really bring freedom? Let's be able to have an honest look at the suicide rates of people who have gone through all of the pain of surgery. Let's have an honest conversation about the mental health challenges they face. We have to take seriously experts in the field like Dr. McHugh, former psychiatrist-in-chief at John Hopkins Hospital, which was the world's leading pioneers in gender reassignment surgery who has said at Hopkins we stopped doing reassignment surgery since producing a surgically satisfied but still troubled patient seemed an inadequate response for surgically amputating normal organs. The third theme is humility. Jesus Christ demonstrated great humility and implying and applying his example to us in the Bible, uh, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. How, do, how does the Bible's understanding of humility challenge both communities? Humility says to the church that we need to be honest about our failures and vulnerability. The established church has absolutely no right to speak to anyone about sexuality, given our sorry record of abuse scandals. And let's not pretend for a moment that we're holding up straight married people as the great ideal. Our own track record of affairs and divorce won't allow for that either. The truth is that if we're going to be a healing presence in our culture, the church has to be more honest about our brokenness and our temptations that are a part part of our human experience as Christians. We have to be honest about our sin. We need to square with the darkness of our own hearts that we're all sexual sinners. Let's be a church where no one pretends not to be broken. If we're not honest, we're a fake community. Jesus often praised sinners like prostitutes and tax collectors precisely because they were more honest than the religious leaders. When it comes to sex... The church is like one beggar telling another where to find bread. But the challenge to the trans community of the Bible's teaching about humility is ultimately to humble ourselves before God. Humility humility unequivocally challenges the roots of thinking of an organization which marches under a banner called pride. Surely humility says to the trans community that you do not have the right to demand that humanity is recast in your trans image. Surely there are ways of protecting and supporting people with genuine gender dysphoria 
without re-engineering the whole basis and structure of which society is built, which will only lead to more confusion and pain for many, poor me, poor, many more people, not to mention to suppression of free speech and religious freedom. To both the church and trans community, the Bible's teaching on humility brings a huge question. How are we going to value others above ourselves? How do both communities demonstrate more love and tolerance to those outside of the communities who do not believe the same things as we do? That's the heart of it. That's what civil society is all about. The degree to which both communities answer the question about humility will be the degree to which society retains any sense of cohesion and unity. Because in Jesus, all things hold together. So finally, the last theme is conversion. Both the church and the trans communities have stories of conversion which fall short of the Bible's understanding. As I read testimonies in the trans community of people coming out to their friends and families, I'm struck by phrases like, I just had to be true to myself. I had to be honest about who I was. I had to be authentic. I had to be real. In the trans community, it's like embracing and accepting your inner self is like taking hold of a liberating truth which sets you free. It's a conversion story. How you reinvent yourself, turn around from the person you were before and start again. Literally, transgender people are trying to be born again. Today, we often reject God but still recognize we need saving. So we search for a savior inside of ourselves. But the Bible looks to a savior from outside of ourselves, beyond us. The Bible says only Jesus can save us. Only he can transform us because it's he who made us. That's a big difference. Instead of thinking of ourselves as blank canvases that we can paint on as we like, the Bible understands all human beings as damaged masterpieces in need of restoration because we're made in God's image. You see, in the Christian story, God not only reveals who he is, he shows us who we are as well. God speaks our identity to us. For the Bible, identity is not discovered within ourselves, nor independently constructed by ourselves. It is revealed to us in Jesus, because in Jesus, all things hold together, including our identity. But we have to understand that the Bible challenges the church's experience of conversion too. In the church, we pay lip service to the lordship of Jesus Christ. But actually, so often it's still about me, about how Jesus fits into my life and makes my life more enriched and happy and successful and purposeful. And at the heart of the Bible's message to the trans community is to say that ultimately a person's identity is only found in God and that whatever orientation or identity issues they are facing... True freedom is only found in trusting God for our happiness and fulfillment, which would be great if only Christians in the church lived like that too. There are still way too many of us finding our primary identity in our looks, our wealth, our job, our popularity, our intellect, or whatever, 
whatever that makes this appeal, and whatever makes this appeal to the trans community completely hypocritical. Only when we are utterly sold out to Christ do we get anywhere near making an alternative conversion story plausible to the trans community. Let's only call people to something we are genuinely living ourselves. What was it Jesus said about seeing a speck in a brother's eye when we have a log in our own? The Bible's call to conversion is very different to both communities. Whoever finds their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And it's Jesus who sets us the supreme example of doing just that. If you are someone who feels a huge mismatch between the body you are in and the person that you really are, Jesus Christ knows all about that. Think about it. God became a man in Jesus. God became a baby. Jesus grew to be a man. The New Testament is full of stories that suggest the frustration and pain that Jesus went through as he persistently limited himself as God into the physical constraints of being a person. Filled by God's spirit, emptying himself from being the creator of the world to be one of us. His identity and his experience was different but he freely chose to live through that identity to save us. Jesus emptied himself and identified as a man so that it might be possible for all of us to be filled with God and identified as God's children. Jesus is before all of us, and in Jesus all things hold together. Only when we recognize the wisdom of Jesus' teaching about love and freedom and humility, will we be able to live a, t a better story in 21st century Britain? And only when Christians are really living out their conversion story will we point the way. I have no better way of finishing than reading the words of Philippians 2, which call people of all faiths and none to the extraordinary example of Jesus Christ. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. So back to the fishing line theft in the art gallery. On the 10th of December, 2018, they found the picture. It had been stored on the premises. In a, in a, um, a gardeners were clearing the ivy on a, an exterior wall. They took the ivy away found a, a steel cabinet there, opened it up, and the picture, the portrait of a lady, had never left. Why did I tell you that story? Simply because Genesis 1 verse 27 
says that we are made male and female in the image of God. And however politically incorrect that might be today, that simply will not go away. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to pray about the identity theft that is happening in our culture right now. That people made in your image, people made male and female, people designed by you, human beings whose identity will only work when you are at the center holding all things together. Lord, it's going terribly, terribly wrong in our culture. But Jesus, we don't want to get involved in a battle which fights for our rights. We long to see the captive set free. We don't want to defend our turf. That's completely the antithesis of everything you stood for. You never fought your own battles. You fought on other people's behalf. And so we pray, Jesus, that you would give wisdom to our legislators. You would give wisdom to our governments you would bring truth to bear that we might experience a freedom in our communities that is a better story than the ones we're currently experiencing. But Jesus, Lord, we, we pray for ourselves as a church that we would live this story of freedom, that we would model this radical conversion story where you are our identity, that we would model this incredible, generous, gracious loving community that you've called us to be, that our lives would be free and deeply attractive because they are. Father, never has there been a time in our society, in our history, where we have been so broken and so lost. Jesus, please raise up the church to be the church, to be a beacon of hope, to be a beacon of love, to be a beacon of freedom, to be a beacon of humility and to be a beacon of real, lasting, transforming conversion. Do this in our lives, we pray, for the honor of your name and for the sake of our nation.